Do you ever find yourself wondering if Elon Musk is really a supervillain hiding in plain sight? Shut up, Nick. God, a weird thing to say. Weird IT nerd. Did you once lose your second grade crush to cholera? Just mere days onto the Oregon Trail? What are you looking at? Nerd. Are you itching to sign up for our cosplay contest coming up on March 2nd? You're like a ninja crossed with a Jedi or something. If you can answer any of those questions, then this is the show for you. This is the Northwest Nerd Podcast. My name is Nick Jaren. And I am Dyer Shathority Oxley, because I got my Shathority shirt in the mail. <laughs> I'm excited about it. On the show today, Dyer got a surprising email from Twitter. Will he change his entire lifestyle because of it? Also in the news, I talked to a Seattle man who ran an online campaign all for a good cause, and now black youth in Seattle will be able to see Black Panther upon its opening. After the news is this week's feature, which is on what, Nick? Oregon Trail. How did this random game become a hilarious and educational part of our generation's childhood? It took a lot more than you'd think, including one point where the code for the game survived on paper. After that... Dyer will try to ruin my day with a quiz on the history and geography of the Oregon Trail. And finally, the quiz bet cometh. I lost last magazine episode's quiz as I tried to stump Dyer with Mr. Freeze quotes. And per the usual bet, I had to watch something of Dyer's choosing. So I will give my reaction to Cowboy Bebop towards the end of the show. And in case you missed it last week, our roundtable episode with Darren Davis of Seattle Met Magazine on the origins of Magic the Gathering was one of my favorite roundtables that we've done this season. Uh, Go give it a listen if you haven't already. Coming up on March 2nd, we're throwing another Emerald City Comic Con after party. We'll have a cosplay contest and prizes from some uh, some familiar sponsors if you've been to any of our other events. We'll talk about that more in the uh, the beginning of our news section in just a second here. And finally, before we get rolling today, if you would like to contribute to the show and help make this thing possible, help us travel, help us get to more conventions, help us put on more events like the party coming up on March 2nd, then go contribute to our Patreon page. You can find a link to it on our website, nw-nerd.com. All right. Let's start where we always do with the news. First off, I wanted to say thank you to everybody who stopped by our booth at the uh, the con to kick off the cons kick- hosted by Renton Comic Con. I've now said con. There's way so too many, many different times. names in there. It's kick off the cons party hosted by Renton City Comic Con, aka Rencon. Mm-hmm. It's a convention for conventions, and then there was also um, comic book collectors there, and, and yeah, toy there were vendors and and, vendors. Uh, and and podcasters like us. A lot of independent. Uh, comic book creators there, including, uh, is it Suburban Vermin? Yeah, Suburban Vermin. Shout out Jason and Nina. Meeting them was really great. That was really fun talking to that guy. And such a great way to market a band is to make a comic book. And (laughs) And ongoing, too. And ongoing. I'm excited about this. I love that. I was excited about the Pogs. We stick uh, the CD in um, because I have a car with a CD player in it. Uh, mm-hmm. On the way home, uh, swell uh, uh, two song CD in there, but yeah. All right. Well, real fun at thing. risk of uh, alienating everyone who didn't exactly, know. yeah, because <laughs> we've now gotten pretty inside. Just wanted to say thank you to everybody who came by our booth and said, "Hey, uh, it was really nice meeting all of you, especially the people who are already familiar with the show and already listeners." That's how awesome. weird was that? I'm just, I don't, I don't get it. Like honestly, like we've been doing this for like a year and a half now. Yeah, and 
I think the show is good. It's weird when I go out there and I see numbers that I, people are actually listening to it. Yeah. I guess I just, uh, in my very introverted world that I live in. Sometimes it doesn't sink in until they're right in your face in. saying, Someone, hey, I like your show. When I'm telling somebody about, I was telling like, like you know, two or three people about, I was like, oh, yeah, it's a magazine podcast. And so I was like, oh, no, no, I listened to it. It's like, yeah. oh. Uh, yeah. So all of this just being one long humble brag that uh, we had a yeah. good time yesterday. Uh, we're taping this on Sunday. It'll be released on Wednesday, but thank you to everybody who said and hi. And Friday, I'm in love. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Other news. Uh, we are throwing another event. Uh, cosplay contest number three at the Raygun Lounge. It's going to be the weekend of Emerald City Comic Con. I'm really excited about it. We got some great judges, uh, um, and you might have to say them so that we say the right names. Miss Miniver. Miniver, right? Miniver. Never mind. We'll both do it. Yeah. Ty Ty Cosplay. Who and won our first contest. Who won our first contest last she's year. She's really good. I believe she's based in Oregon, so she'll be coming up mm-hmm. for that. Um, and then also Valoria Solo Cosplay that I don't know if it has anything to do with the Pixies, but I get them stuck in my head whenever I say her cosplay name. And she's so. just awesome. So, yeah, and then we've got plenty of prizes too. Mm-hmm. Uh, same, uh, Some same names that sound familiar, Pacific Fabrics, Outsider Comics and Geek Boutique, Tap Plastics and Pink Gorilla Games here in town. And then our friend Tai Tai Cosplay also heads up a lead by example clothing brand and she'll mm-hmm. be donating some stuff as well. Um, should make some nice little prize packages for our winners. Yeah, we'll see everybody there. Pre-registration will be going up in probably the next week or two. Uh, we're still working out a couple details on that. More details on our Facebook page where you can find the event page as well. Uh, Okay, shall we get to real news now? Let's do it. Let's start with this strange and interesting email that you got from a Twitter.com. I did, yeah, and I'm just going to read you directly from read you the intro part for it. So I get this email about a week ago or so from Twitter. Uh, it, go, it starts off, as part of our recent work to understand Russian-linked activities on Twitter during the 2016 U.S. presidential election, we identified and suspended a number of accounts that were potentially connected to a propaganda effort by a Russian government-linked organization known as the Internet Research Agency, or what people like to call IRA. They identify these accounts. If you retweeted or or liked or somehow interacted with any of these tweets, they uh, notified you. Apparently, I had somehow interacted with one of these tweets, which for a couple reasons is baffling to me because I don't interact very much on Twitter at all. We had a great little roundtable with uh, Genevieve from Grapes of Rad and uh, after these messages talking about how toxic Twitter is. So this is not my scene. (laughs) Somehow... This, this scene took on me. They like, got you anyway. They got me anyway. And so, yeah, if you go through a lot of these uh, accounts that they were, they were posing as the Tennessee GOP. They were posing as other people uh, from a whole host of uh, accounts. They identified 3,814 IRA accounts. Now, this is just the IRA accounts. That's connected to the Russian government. Um, the Washington Post, I'm going to give Eli Rosenberg credit for this. He calls them Kremlin-linked troll farm. Mm-hmm. I love that name. That's exactly what it is. Ira put out 176,000 tweets in 10 weeks before the election. Outside of Ira, there was another 50,258 automated accounts that were connected to the Russian government, which tweeted more than 1 million times. They ended up notifying 677,775 people that use Twitter. One of them is me. 
it, I don't know how I would have even interacted with it. Another little fact that I found in here too, Russian bots, they were bots, actual automated bots were programmed to retweet Trump 470,000 times. Mm. This is how much That's interesting. they've got in, in there for us. And, and um, I want to be clear um, because I think when I said this earlier, you you said I was both sides in it. And I, I want to make sure I'm clear about it because <laughs> it's not where I'm going this. Put aside your politics. If you look at what they did, so I'm just going to look at some of the tweets here. You know, somebody that they claimed was Pamela Moore. You know, there's a guy with a T-shirt. Clearly the T-shirt's been Photoshopped. But it says, you know, Obama calls me a clinger. Hillary calls me a deplorable. Terrorists call me an infidel. Trump calls me an American. And then there's like a fake news thing about uh, Bill Clinton. There's a, some sort of meme about how Director Comey should resign from the FBI. Um, and here's where the, the thing I want to make sure that I'm clear. And this is the type of ingenuity that scares the crap out of me. They know our issues. They know our hot button issues. There was a tweet here. From somebody named Crystal Johnson. I don't know if that's real or not, but it involves uh, Colin Kaepernick and uh, that hot button issue. Who out in Twitter is going to get in arguments about that kind of stuff? Is it going to be the Tennessee GOP that they posed as because they interacted with it? They found these issues. They found the people that are going to get irate about it and tweet and get in arguments about it. And they pushed our buttons. They trolled us mm. in an election. Expertly. Expertly in a very targeted way. So, I mean, like the evidence is there. And, and this is all because Twitter now has to communicate with Congress because Congress is a little freaked out that another government found a loophole in our system, our social media, to influence us. Russia infiltrated successfully the virality of Twitter. Right. Is what they did. Here's the scary thing. This is just Twitter. The, the, the bigger gorilla in the room, I would argue, is Facebook. Mm-hmm. Imagine what you can do with all the tools available to you on Facebook. I So I guess at the end of the day, what I'm saying is I'm part of the problem. <laughs> it's my fault. It's my fault everything that happened. So I'm sorry. Uh, at least it's my fault in 677,774 other people. So two things. One, I don't want to hear anybody giving a Twitter a pat on the back for this. Okay. They should have been doing this anyway. <laughs> right. It's their own fault that they let their platform get out of control and... They were probably relishing the fact that they became a relevant portion of the news cycle as the election mm-hmm. season went on. Yeah, and bear in mind, why are they doing this? They promised Congress because mm-hmm. somebody came at them. They're not doing this of their own volition. Yeah. So uh, number two, what do you think is actionable about this? Like what what have we learned from this that we can then change? A journalist in me likes Twitter for a certain reason. Um, but I use it when there's a certain level of quality control. And the thing about Twitter and Facebook is there really is no quality control. People see memes a lot. People see you know little images that anybody can make that has a picture of somebody and says, look at this person, this is what they've done. But we don't know if any of that's true. Mm-hmm. When you go to a newspaper, and this is the value of actually having a news source, when you go to a newspaper or have competing newspapers, you know that there's some level of gatekeeping of information, of quality, of accuracy that went and happened. Um, You don't know that on Twitter. There is a level of responsibility that comes with that. Newspapers know it. TV news knows it. It, Obviously, there's people in those groups that don't know it. But for the most part, ethically, they know it. Social media doesn't have that gatekeeping ability right now, as far as I can tell. And they're going to have to find a way to figure out some kind of quality and accuracy control or else they're just 
they're not social media. They're just ignorant media. They're just something that works to make our society worse. And I don't think that's what they want to be. They want to be viewed as something that makes us better and connected. Onto other things. Yes. I'm going to steal your line, Nick, and say, let's do this. I recently was able to interview a man here in Seattle who is involved in a campaign that involves your favorite yet-to-be-released movie. Marvel's highly anticipated Black Panther film is set for a February release into theaters, and in the lead-up to the debut, communities around the country have held fundraising campaigns so black youth in underserved areas can go see it. Communities from Charleston to Harlem have run such campaigns, and you might have seen some headlines from when Ellen got involved, but an effort also arose in our backyard in Seattle. Edwin Lindo ran a fundraising campaign on GoFundMe to benefit youth in the Seattle area, and the community stepped up. Edwin explains to Northwest Nerd more about the effort. So the organizing body, the collective, is, is the People's Party of Seattle. And um, some people may have heard of it, others may have. But if you haven't, you can check it out. It's on Facebook. But that, that body is really a collective of community organizers, community members that uh, ran Nikita Oliver for mayor uh, as a representative of, of a community that needs the most help and support and we we also made dedication and a promise that that campaign wasn't going to be the only thing we do as a party um we want to make sure that we are in the community that we're organizing with our community and one thing that came up was this idea of uh, this film black panther and we're seeing a lot of uh, requests and a lot of attention to these huge red carpet events that are happening all over the country on, on its uh, on its premiere date or premiere weekend. But we didn't see much around an effort uh, to get youth in there, uh, particularly black youth, uh, especially black youth here in Seattle. Because um, the reality it is, uh, for those that are movie buffs, having a predominantly black cast in a Marvel comic movie is one of a kind, and we, we had this feeling that it would be something special uh, to have these youth be able to see themselves and see creativity and see imagination just flowing and manifesting itself on the big screen in ways that maybe they haven't seen before. Uh, and so that was the, the initial thrust and impetus for us to, to start this GoFundMe campaign. And to be honest, when we launched it, it just it blew up. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. You, you started this campaign around late January. Um, you, you had an initial goal. How long did it take you to reach that? Uh, an hour and a half. <laughs> really? An hour and a half? Yeah. So that's even uh, faster than I realized. I, I knew it was fast, yeah. but I didn't realize it was that fast. Yeah, the initial goal was $3,000 because that's how much it would cost to reserve uh, the largest theater in, in the cinema that we're hosting it at. And, and we weren't sure how it was going to gain traction, if people would be interested or not. And, it, you know, really it was within the hour that we were at $2,800. And then that hour and a half, it, it surpassed 3000 so obviously you guys put forth another goal since then. I think, did you guys eventually end up with three goals after surpassing? Yeah, so then we had doubled it and said, let's get to 6,000. And we reached that point uh, pretty quickly, I'd say within probably five to six hours. 
And then, um, and so we said, you know what, let's, let's aim for a goal of 10,000. And that goal was met in 24 hours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, last time I actually checked in on this here, it was 10,000 goals set. You guys ended up raising $10,660 from 395 people. So unscientifically breaking that down, that's about $27 a person. That's pretty strong support in a very short amount of time. How would you guys respond to that? You know, we were just more excited about the support that people were willing to give to the youth. What it showed was people really wanted to support them. They wanted them to be there. They wanted to have that experience for them. And so we, we were we were ecstatic. We were pumped. We kept sharing messages and saying, wow, look how many how many people are contributing. Look how fast this is going uh, to the point where we said, well, instead of one showing, let's do two. And then instead of two showing, we'll do three. And so we're going to have uh, close to 500 uh, young black youth from the Seattle area uh, watching Black Panther on its premiere weekend. Let me ask about that. In the end, what will this look like? How do you plan to organize these viewings? So thankfully, we have a lot of people on the team that work closely with youth, both in high school, in middle school, in college. And so organizing is kind of what we do. And, and what we decided was... We wanted people to be able to sign up. And so we're working with the local schools, with their local organizations uh, to reach out to those students directly and other organizations outside of the school district uh, that may also have access to students that would like to see the movie. Again, it's a free ticket. You show up. Uh, it's all, there's also going to be concessions available. Uh, we're going to give uh, a coupon so that each of the, the youth that come in will be able to go to concession and get some popcorn. And we're also going to be handing out um, some goodies for them to be able to leave with. So it's not just a movie, but uh, some things to be able to express their creativity. Because that's, that's what we want, right? This is a creative endeavor that, that uh, folks went on to create Black Panther in the form that we're going to be watching it in. Uh, and we want the students to, to test their imagination as well in the same way. So we'll have uh, one in the beginning of the day, middle of the day, and the end of the day. Uh, and people have been signing up for each one of those. And, and we'll just have a list uh, of those that signed up and, and we just kind of check and, and say, did you sign up? Great. And if some people didn't sign up, right, uh, maybe they showed up and said, I heard about it last minute. We'll, we'll definitely try to find a way to get people in. We don't, we don't want to turn anyone away. What is your mm -hmm. hope of what this film can do for the day that you guys are having these viewings? I mean, what would be your your ultimate hope to happen? The best thing that we can we can witness is these youth being humanized uh, in a city that for a long time has, has dehumanized many of, of the community members, especially on the south side of Seattle. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're talking about underfunded schools. We're talking about uh, roads that are decrepit. We're talking about public transportation that doesn't reach into the neighborhood that most of these kids are going to be coming from. Uh, and this is a moment where they said, wow, we can be ourselves and enjoy something that they're offering us at no cost. And it's on the premiere weekend. We're going to be treated. They're going to be treated as though they're what we're calling getting onto a black carpet. Right. You know, they don't have to wait until it gets on Netflix or have to find a way to get twenty dollars to go to the AMC. It will be there for them as though they deserved it. We want them to be inspired that uh people in this community love them. That, that really is the humanizing effort, is just showing unconditional love for these youth, uh, which, which we will do then. We have done in our work in the past, but what we're going to do moving forward as well.
Thank you, Edwin, for talking with us at Northwest Nerd. You can still donate to the GoFundMe page. Google Black Panther for Black Youth Seattle should take you to the right place. If you have any youth in the area that can benefit from this campaign, Edwin says you can contact him via email at edwin.lindo at gmail.com. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Let's do this. Let's get to your feature on uh, Oregon Trail. In a, uh, in a pair of episodes that I like to think are kind of siblings to each other. Last week, we talked to Darren Davis about the origins of Magic the Gathering. And this week, we're getting a story from you, Dyer, about the origins of Oregon Trail. Just a classic. Don't forget, after the feature, we will have a, uh, a quiz to be announced. I don't know it yet because Dyer's about to spring it on me. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then after that, we will have the payoff for me losing the quiz from the last magazine episode. I watched a couple episodes of Cowboy Bebop, and uh, I get to report back. I'm excited about that. And if things go well, I am going to ruin Nick's day. Oh, God. You'll see why. Well, first, let's hit the Oregon Trail. grew up playing Oregon Trail, and I was obsessed with Oregon Trail, and school was the only place I could play it. This is Matisse Fletcher. She loves Oregon Trail, the video game. And so I'd go to school, and I would sit before school, and I would sit after school, and I would play, I think, the 1993. It was in the it was a 90s version, because it was a color version. And I would play it for hours and hours. You were just excited about shooting, like, bison and dysentery. fighting off. And, like, dysentery, yeah. You're excited about dysentery in Oregon Trail. <laughs> So yeah, a little bit obsessed with Oregon Trail. It's from a time when teachers in the 80s and 90s would sit students down in front of a computer and they would play this 8-bit style game with 8-bit music and bleeps. In Oregon Trail, you have a party, you give them names, you buy supplies before the trip, and you hunt while on the trail, cross rivers. Sometimes there's water, sometimes there's not, sometimes people get injured or your oxen are stolen, and you mimic the actual experience of those who took the Oregon Trail in the 1800s. I loved watching the wagon float across the river and either sink and I'd be upset and I'd have to restart or make it across. I loved hunting and gathering and bringing back food. And I didn't care about the family. I didn't care. I wanted to go hunt and I wanted to like go trade. That was my favorite part. And I found it irritating that I had to worry about little Timmy when he when he got a snake bite. Whereas when I played it yesterday, I was very concerned because both Johnny and Timmy got snake bites. It was very stressful. Now, Matisse is long out of school, but lucky for her, she works at Living Computers, which is a museum of sorts in Seattle. They have an impressive range of old systems that people can actually use, including this game. It's like a perk of the job. You can play the original 1971 text base on our Xerox Sigma 9, or you can play the 1981 version on the Apple II. Oregon Trail doesn't exist anymore. At least, it doesn't exist in the way that Matisse is talking about. But its influence remains, whether it's in our pop culture consciousness or even in the computers that we use today. You can even find t-shirts that have wagons on them and reference a death by dysentery. So a lot of people experienced Oregon Trail from its 1980s and 90s versions, but the roots of this game actually happened a decade before all that. It was an experimental idea that started with this guy. Don Rawich, and I am a developer of educational technology products for the K-12 school market. 
1971, Don was studying to be a teacher. He was a student teacher at the time, and he was assigned to teach some middle schoolers a unit on the westward movement. It's when hundreds of thousands of people made this trip from the eastern part of the United States to the western territories. They went via the Oregon Trail, which wasn't actually a single trail. It was more of a series of routes and landmarks that led you to the Northwest and to California. I knew that having kids read about this in textbooks was not going to cut it. Uh, and I began to think about, wouldn't the Oregon Trail trip uh, back in the 1800s lend itself to a board game kind of format? He starts to lay this out on the floor of his apartment. And that's where his two college roommates, Bill Heinemann and Paul Dillenberger, found him. I explained what I was doing, and they said it's a great idea to teach using a game, but we, we ought to put this game on the computer. We were fortunate enough that the Minneapolis public schools had computing capabilities for the schools, um, although they would seem quite primitive to people today. Primitive, but the game they eventually came up with was essentially the game that students would play even years later. You would press a number for certain options or respond yes or no, and the game would progress. But the first version of the game worked on a teletype machine. That machine had a little phone connected to it. And you plug that into a box called a coupler. And when the computer started sending its digital signals across that connection, the teletype would, uh, would print out what the computer sent and would allow you to type something in to send to the computer. Back then, you would actually hear the computer communicate with the teletype over this phone line. Kind of sounded like a fax machine. And the computer was actually in a building far, far away from where you were actually typing. And I would credit um, Bill and Paul to having worked out the kind of the flow of the game. Don did something different. It could be said that what he did next is what adds all the character to Oregon Trail. And so I went to the library and did research. And I found that there were printed versions of actual diaries that people kept as they made that trail. What, what kinds of things happened? How often did they happen? And I went back into the code for the Oregon Trail program and adjusted the probabilities so that things happened at about the same probability as they seem to happen from the settlers' uh, accounts. That's why Jimmy breaks his leg or why it rains certain times. And uh, we were able to play Oregon Trail starting on December 3rd, 1971, for about a week. The, the kids, you could see that they were talking about this this migration, uh, it meant something to them. And the, the computer put them right in the middle of the trip in a covered wagon, which was a different way of learning than they had ever experienced. And then, well, the course ended. And so did Oregon Trail. You see, Don and his two friends, they were not employees of the school district. So Oregon Trail was erased from the district computer. But before that could happen, and so we, uh, we printed out the code uh, on, on the roll of paper and uh, hung on to it for a couple of years. The code of that time was BASIC. Stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. And for a few years, Oregon Trail didn't exist anywhere except on that scroll of paper that Don carried around with him. 1974 rolls along. Don's out of college and he goes to work for a place called Minnesota Education Computing Consortium. It's referred to as MEC. The mission there was to set up a large computer system for the Twin Cities that would be accessed by schools across the state via that telephone method that I mentioned before. 
He gets to work on that, and he noticed that there was some space for a library of applications, stuff that teachers would use. So I brought a teletype to the house I was living in, and over a weekend, I typed in 800 lines of code from the scroll so that it could now be stored on that, uh, that Minnesota computing system. It was available to Minnesota schools from 1974 to 1980. Even at this level, this is pretty revolutionary. That was a game that was one of the first video game-based tools that were being used in elementary schools. And how many games echo that strategy and like world building? Because granted, all of it started with like D&D and whatever preceded D&D. But Oregon Trail was one of the first that had you um, build inventories on a computer. If you trade with this person at this, you know, at Fort Laramie, down the way, your wagon might sink and you're going to have to figure out a way to trade again. And it was one of those strategy games and that to me was just so fascinating because so many games now, like pick any that you can imagine playing on any console or PC gaming, you have inventories and you have to strategize around your inventory. So that was, I think that was just cool. And this was all before a significant shift happened in computing and education. In the early 1980s, people started making these computers that would actually fit on your desktop. And they noticed this at Mech and figured schools would be interested. The Apple II being uh, one of the early models. Yeah, that Apple computer. Mech came up with some specifications for a computer that would work in schools. And they put it out to bid. Uh, Apple Computer's bid was the low bid that met all of the criteria. And so uh, Mech created a contract with Apple that was open to Minnesota schools so that they could purchase apples. Mech also had some influence on what they came with, which were these square floppy disks. One of those disks had Oregon Trail printed on it. People in, in education across the country looked around and said, you know, there's only one state that's got some kind of statewide coordination for computing, and that's Minnesota. And Minnesota has chosen Apple, so maybe we should use Apple. And the other thing was that Mech set about the task of converting the applications that had been running on the large computer system, uh, converting that to code that could run on the Apple II computer. And when Oregon Trail went from the mainframe to the desktop, it also got an upgrade. It looked a lot like what generations of students now remember. There were pictures, for one. It had those little 8-bit noises on it. It was a little bit more engaging. We always felt that we helped to push Apple's popularity because they were they became the leaders in the education market and in return uh things like the oregon trail got a lot more visibility than just in one state really the relationship between the two of them was so momentous and so fortuitous i feel like if there hadn't been that partnership there wouldn't have been as much presence of either in schools could probably say there were possibly uh, four generations of the Oregon Trail product. One was the, the one done on the large mainframes. And then when uh, the personal computers came out in around uh, 1979, 1980 for Apple's, uh, then the, the third generation would be the versions of the Oregon Trail uh, that Mech made available for other personal computer models like IBM and Atari. Maybe the fourth generation would be um, an expanded version of Oregon Trail that came from Mech, but um, used the innovative method um, filming staff members dressed up as pioneers 
you actually could listen to a human being speak via video that would come up on the screen. It's such a common denominator with a lot of people because we all had it in elementary school. And so it's something that I have found is a common enough thread that if I'm meeting new people, particularly in the context of living computers, that is a game I know I can bring up and that we can have that in common and that we can talk about. It's been nearly 50 years since Oregon Trail was first put on a computer mainframe. Dawn's involvement with it ended a long time ago. But Oregon Trail has never really been quite finished with Dawn. One, one quick story. I was in Boston and uh, we went to a, um, a booth in a shopping center where you could get a ticket to, to take a, a, like a bus tour around Boston. And uh, we got up to the ticket taker who was a, a woman probably in her 20s. And I just happened to mention why I, I was in Boston. And I, one of the, my purposes there was to talk to a group about Oregon Trail. And she let out this, this howling scream of excitement uh, that she was talking to somebody who had uh, helped to invent her favorite game. Last couple of years, there's also been a Reddit AMA. Just last year, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco did a whole special retrospective on Oregon Trail. It drew a few hundred people. And it's the only educational video game in the strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. And Dawn continues to go around talking all things Oregon Trail and answering fan questions. Like, how much money he and his friends made off of this game? Uh, the three of us inventors did not make any money. The only way that Oregon Trail could have gotten into the market was through uh, what turned out to be an organization that I worked for. And as a matter of fact, the, the versions that most people remember that became popular were the ones developed for personal computers. So that's all to say that uh, although there's no fortune, there's been plenty of fame. Another question. If he could make Oregon Trail today, would he do anything different or would there be other details that he would include? The uh, Native American perspective, I, th I think, is important because uh, so much of uh, messages that have come from our culture over the past decades have, have tended to uh, portray the, the travel west as a situation where uh, uh, white pioneers traveled in a covered wagon and were attacked by tribes of Indians all the time. And it, it sets up a good guy, bad guy kind of scenario, which is unfair. Yeah, it turns out that tribes weren't often looking for a fight. In fact, according to many of those diaries that Don talked about, indigenous peoples were quite helpful. Help to um, understand how to find food and, and uh, how to stay away from things that, that were not uh, healthy for you. I think when the settlement first began, the Native American people thought giving a little help would be fine. Uh, but then, of course, the, the immigration turned into a, uh, a rushing river and uh, they found that they were being overwhelmed in, in their own territories. But also there is the impact. In, in some cases, uh, the white settlers uh, were carrying diseases their bodies had never experienced. Uh, and so they could be adversely affected just by coming into contact. It's a, it's a complicated story. And sometimes I think it's been oversimplified. I definitely believe that there, there are many ways that you can use games um, to teach people. And so what, what better way to make that new information meaningful and memorable uh, than to make it part of a, of a game experience, which is something that, that tends to, uh, to stick with you.
I usually look down on nostalgia in all forms because I think that a lot of the time people misremember things. They remember things as better than what they actually were. Yeah. But Oregon Trail is awesome, and I will unabashedly be nostalgic about this. You can go and play it on the Internet Archive, which I did, and uh, it, it, it holds up. In fact, playing it as an adult is a much different experience, and now that I know how to do things like math, so <laughs> it, it's it really takes a lot of critical thinking to get through this game, which I haven't done because... Well, I sent you the other day. I sent you pictures that one, you broke your arm, and then you died. That's true. Yeah, I died on your trip to. And then cholera got me. So, um, yeah, we didn't make it to Oregon. So, <laughs> sorry, but I never beat that game as a kid. It's well, you can I never beat it. If, I mean, that's the thing. There's strategy to it, and I never realized that yeah. before. I just thought it was just this weird educational. I thing. gotta revisit it on the on the archives. So much fun. Uh, one in particular thing that I wanted to talk about in this piece was. Uh, when Don talked about how he would reimagine the game if he were to do it now, and he would put much more focus on the Native American experience, I was really excited to hear that because when I look back at my memories of Oregon Trail, that was definitely something that was lacking. It seemed like you were just out in this empty wilderness and no one was there yeah. except for you. And there, there's, there's tribes and, and Native Americans in there. They just really don't go to them. You meet them at the forts. Mm-hmm. You mean about a trading post? Um, and there, uh, there is a, a mention in there saying uh, the only mention I was least came across was uh, somebody was saying, "Hey, you know, first we were kind of guiding folks around, but now just it seems like there's endless. They're taking up all the land. If have you have you ruined all the land or eaten up all the land where you're from, mm-hmm. and that's why you're coming out here?" I think the term that he used that that hit it most for me was setting up this good guy bad guy dynamic, and I think that's because people loved movies and stories about cowboys versus Indians. cowboys versus Indians and and all that stuff but uh really what it was was a lot of trading was a lot of I mean they help people figure out this is what you should eat and this is what will kill you um but the other part um that he touched upon was the disease factor and I don't think a lot I mean I, you hear about it but I don't think a lot of people realize the significance of that we we hear about doing the Oregon Trail and we got cholera mm-hmm. but we don't really hear about um, the flu epidemics and, and there's other diseases that we brought with us. Smallpox. Smallpox. Um, but a lot of stuff that we brought that really just decimated an entire population. If you can imagine from the Western perspective of the plague entering in through um, through Southern Europe and going through Europe, and it's essentially what happened here. Now in the imagine New world. if a uh, an invader brought all of that. So his idea of making either a companion or redoing the game so that you can play multiple characters and try to do the best of experiencing it through those characters, I think is a really, really great idea. Of course, he's not going to do that now, and I I don't know who owns Oregon Trail right now. I doubt they're going to do it Um, because you mentioned there was some mobile apps and games. I'm not sure if that's even connected to the original mech system Yeah, my brother and I got into playing a like mobile app version of the game a few years ago, but I was able, I was unable to find it again before this taping. Yeah. So. so I don't know who would do it, but it would be interesting if they did. And if they did do it, please make it 8-bit. <laughs> Just make it 8-bit. All right, well, uh, you're trying to ruin my day. Let's uh, let's rip this band-aid okay, off. I, so I believe that it's quiz time. It is quiz time. Um, if uh, this goes all right, I will ruin your day. So I'm just got uh, put together some 
historical and geographical factoids about the Northwest with an Oregon Trail kind of nexus. And so I'm just, it's history and geography that we're going to go by from the Northwest. Some of these I would not get. Some of these I would not. This I is would get. bad news for me. This is all bad news so because I, out, I am targeting the, you. Uh, the wind conditions, and then we'll hit the theme and we'll go. Okay, so I have uh, 12 points possible out of 10 questions. All okay. right. And uh, a couple of them are multiple choice. Geography and history about Oregon, Oregon Trail, etc. And so Nick Jarin... History and geography of the Northwest via the Oregon Trail. We're going to start off first with this question. Costoga wagons were used on the Oregon Trail. From this wagon, a slang term was derived for an unhealthy smoking device or an unhealthy smoking habit. What was it? Is this multiple choice? No. But uh, I'm telling you they are Costoga wagons that yeah, were used on the Oregon Trail. Yeah, I want to say Stogie. That is correct. Stogie, uh, because the cigars were often smoked by the drivers of the Costoga wagons, they call them Stogies. Interesting fact, Costoga wagons were really not actually used at all on the Oregon Trail. They were very rarely used Mm. because they were more expensive. Um, That's the wagons essentially where you have somebody sitting on the wagon driving horses in front of them. They didn't use a lot of horses. They used oxen, and they used essentially farm wagons, which were a lot smaller. But, yes, you got that one correct. Moving on... This geographical gash divides Idaho and Oregon, and it is the deepest of its kind in America. So deep, you should probably keep an eye out for Beelzebub. What is it? Um, I don't know fully what this is, but I feel like it's named something like Devil's Canyon. Okay. You're close. I'm going to give you a second run on that. Um, Satan's Canyon. We were looking for Hell's Canyon. Hell's Canyon, which divides Oregon and Idaho. Um, It is, uh, yeah, it's actually the deepest canyon of its kind in the Mm. United States. And it's right here in our backyard. I didn't realize that. What we just covered, disease, was a common way to die in the Oregon Trail game. Drownings happen too. But in reality, there was another very, very common way to meet your doom on the trail. And that was accidents. People, many inexperienced pioneers, were caught under wagon wheels or they were hurt by animals. But the most common way to die via an accident on the trail was this. Just multiple choice? No. Oh, my God. Uh, Common accident. And I do have a a hint for you if you want. You already said getting run over. Mm -hmm. Perhaps falling out of the wagon. Um, It is still... Tragically, it is still a common accident today. You already said drowning. Mm-hmm. So it's not drowning. That's pretty common. Falling? Is that your final answer? I don't I don't know what you're looking for here. Yeah, falling. The answer we were looking for was gunshots. Ah. People got shot a lot on the trail by accident. You imagine these that were the old, these were a lot of old like uh even kind of black powder guns that they would probably keep loaded in the uh, in the wagons, they would get jostled. Um, one of the things I was reading that they would hear something off in the wilderness, and they would just get freaked out and shoot. And people got shot by accident a lot on the Oregon Trail. Dang. Um, and sadly, yeah, still a, uh, a still of- a problem. 
The economy of Idaho originally boomed in the 1860s because of this. Gold. That is correct. Gold. Uh, which was actually why a lot of people came out here. Now, follow-up question. While gold may have brought a lot of people to Idaho, something else may have kept them there. Idaho has a nickname, and it is derived because this is so plentiful there. What is it? Potatoes. It's not potatoes. It's related to the White gold. White supremacists. <laughs> it's related to the gold nexus. <laughs> Uh, silver. Mm. Uh, copper. No. I don't know. Idaho is called the gem state because Idaho has a plethora of gems. It's got a lot of valuable gems that they mine there. Garnet, opal, jade, topaz. Interestingly enough, they also have a lot of petrified wood there. So mm. it's known as the gem state, and so it's still actually a thriving part of their economy. Interesting historical factoid. Ezra Meeker was the first mayor and the first postmaster of Puyallup. And he came here via the Oregon Trail. He made the trip again when he was 74 years old. However, he felt civilization was covering over the trail and its history, so he made it by wagon when he was 74 in 1906. And then before he died at the age of 87, he made the crossing again via three other forms of transportation. So imagine this is the early 1900s. What were those three forms of transportation, one point each? Uh, train, dirigible. I have no idea what that is. So not dirigible. Uh, is this just like a, a cash cab red light challenge type thing? Like I can just keep on listing things? I will give you... <laughs> Hot air balloon? I will, I will just let you... Automobile? Yes, and uh, you got two of them: uh, horse-drawn carriage, Pony Express, boat. Won't take you across the United States. That's fair. Um, yeah, I don't know. You got two out of three. The other one was airplane. Airplane. He made it over an airplane. What year? What year did he do that? Uh, before he died. Well, he died in uh, so he was seventy-four in nineteen oh six. If he would have died at the age of ninety-seven, and I think he made his last trip when he was ninety-six. So, yeah, airplanes mm. would have been pretty plentiful then. Mm. Oregon became a territory in this year. Your three options are 1848, 1854, or 1863. 48. You are correct. You like that stone-cold answer on that mm -hmm. one? I'm definitely losing this quiz. But Oregon, actually, you're doing pretty well even here. Oregon became a state... In either 1898, 1887, or 1859. 59 seems early, although it was the first of the Oregon Territory to be turned into a state. But I know the University of Washington was founded in the 1860s, and it feels weird that Oregon would already be a state by the time they did that. So what was the middle one? 87? 87. I'm going to go 87. 1859. Really? Yeah. Man, that happened fast. For it did happen. Well, you think of the Oregon Territory having like parts of Idaho and Washington and all yeah. that. and So they're breaking those off. But all right. Two more questions. The city of Portland was founded in 1845 and its name was chosen by a coin toss. 
The name Portland won the best two out of three coin tosses. What was the other East Coast name that Portland was almost named for? Portsmouth. I'm going to let you know that Port is not involved with it. Okay, that's good to know. East Coast City? An East Coast City. Washington. Boston. Boston? Boston. Why would there be more than one Boston? Why would there be more than one Portland? Because there's tons of land that has ports. Well, it was it was Boston. The uh, there was there's two founders That's of the so city, dumb. and they wanted to name it after the hometowns. So, the guy with Portland won. Well. Last one, Idaho's Capitol Building is the only Capitol Building in the United States that is heated by this. Think naturally. Solar power. Wait, wait, wait. No, uh, uh, uh geothermal heat. Geothermal water. Since 1983, the city of Boise has operates a uh, geothermal district and actually heats a lot of buildings, including the Capitol. In the course of a year, the system circulates more than 300 million gallons of water through approximately 20 miles of pipeline with water hotter than 170 degrees. Dang. I got to well, play more Oregon Trail. I feel like that was a really poor showing on my part. <laughs> well, none of these facts are on Oregon Trail. <laughs> these are just all stuff I looked up. Nick Jarin. That's me. I can tell you're a little mad at me. <laughs> 12 points possible. You needed nine, which is essentially a grade of a C. And you got six. Yeah, that sounds right. Play Twitter. The Facebooks, all that stuff. Send us your answers online. Let us know how yeah. well you did. Um, do you want to know your consequences? Yes. You're gonna. Oh, this is. You're gonna like rubbing salt in the wound for you. Do I have to watch more Supernatural? No, no. You're gonna make me watch Star Trek Discovery. Oh, that's a good idea. But no. <laughs> all right. What is it? You are gonna watch two episodes. Of Gilmore Girls. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing. I've seen very many pieces of very many episodes. Really? Because before the new stuff came out, my girlfriend binged through a bunch of the old stuff. So, you f- so you I'm f- familiar with a lot of what happens in the show. However, I've never watched an entire episode from beginning to end. Okay. So you f- All right. I also forget everyone's name. I am going to just make you watch them anyways. All right. Okay. Uh, season two, episode nineteen, uh, and season four, episode twenty. I picked two episodes that involve similar characters. They kind of trade off between boyfriends and in schools and things like that. But this should have a little bit of a related thing going on in there. So okay, cool. Yeah. Um, Wait, I'm, is uh, is uh, the guy from Supernatural in one of these? No, okay. I not no. Jared Padalecki. He is not in this one. So I am. Uh, well, no, no, he might be in one actually. That might he might be in one of these. So. Um, I am sorry to bring you down so much, <laughs> I. Uh, but I really did want to get you to watch Gilmore Girls. Mm, so, mm. yeah. At any cost. Yes. Um, but that's not all the quiz news we have. No. this Actually, this is way more exciting than uh, <laughs> Gilmore Girls. So I lost the last quiz because you, uh, you triumphed by getting a uh, two yep. better than a coin flips answer to my Mr. Freeze quotes. Yes. People at home, can which do the were math hilarious quotes by the even the ones that you made those. up were great. I enjoyed doing. I that did one. remember the dinosaurs one though. That's it's pretty <laughs> hard to. That's not hard. Which also not historically accurate. No, not at all. Yeah. No, he uh, he really feeds into his own story. 
Um, because I lost that, I watched two episodes of Cowboy Bebop, an anime that I have not seen in probably around 15 years, probably more. And um, actually, let's do the math on that real quick. I think it ended around 15 years ago, so that sounds about right. Mm, yeah. But I had forgotten a lot about the show other than just stylistically right. what it was about. I went back and watched the first two episodes, so I actually didn't get to the part in the show where the gang is all together yet. Yeah, it takes a bit to get there. I think it takes around like five episodes to get everybody on the Bebop together. Yeah. Uh, in the second episode, they uh, they get the Corgi. The Corgi yeah. joins the crew, and that's where I left things off. Um, so just a couple quick... Uh, initial reactions and then we can talk a little bit more about it the theme song just a classic yeah uh not really not really sure how much more i can say about it than that because it's so good and i was always jealous of the junior high jazz bands that would get to play it and i wasn't in jazz band because i was like i was in jazz I want band to play that song and we didn't play that but yeah uh cigarettes there are a lot of cigarettes in this show and in the is, future yeah it's weird to see um there's there's one in particular yeah. shot I believe in the in the second episode when Jet tosses a, a lit cigarette to Spike and they're in outer space and they're standing on the deck so obviously there's some form of yeah. artificial gravity and yet the cigarette just floats yeah <laughs> and it's super distracting how much physics that breaks and then they they just keep on smoking and they use it in really clever ways like they use cigarettes as a timekeeping, um, mm-hmm. as a way to keep time on uh, visually, because since everybody's animated, you can't really tell that someone's been like aging over time or anything like that. Right. Or that an hour passed and things like that. But you can down. tell because the cigarette goes down, and it's 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 such a clever way to incorporate that. It makes it look cool, which I think is a little troubling. But yeah. hey, you know what? 1998. I, yeah, but I think it's also a callback to the noir aspect that they're yeah. trying to to work with here. So essentially, you've got the the Humphrey Bogart character, very you know, noir. smoking a cigarette, yeah. very uh, rogue with a code. At one point, I watched one episode with uh, subtitles and one episode uh, dubbed because I figured I would prefer it subtitled, and you would prefer it dubbed. So I watched one of each, and mm-hmm. I gotta say. Uh, the subtitled one is way better. I really? can't get over some of the localized accents that they used yeah. in the dub version, which are just so cringeworthy. Yeah. There's one there's there was one character who had an over the top like Chinese immigrant accent, which I found deeply offensive. I'm trying to and remember. And then uh, there was another was. character who had a like California surfer accent for no apparent <laughs> reason. And it was really distracting, so I went back to something. Now, when you watch the uh, subtitled version, is because I don't know Japanese well enough to pick up any accents. So I'm wondering if there's like an effect, like the surfer guy, is there like a Japanese equivalent of the surfer guy? Yeah, there probably is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. I've watched other things where people remark on someone's surfer accent, and I'm like, I my ear for Japanese is not tuned well enough to hear that. Yeah. And now I'm just trying to imagine Spicoli in Japanese. <laughs> A lot of vocal fry. Uh, finally, just the mechanical nature of all the tech in the show is fantastic. I love how tactile everything is. Mm. Things clunk into place, and the, just the weight that everything has um, from uh, Spike's fighter and the way that it kind of rattles around and things like that is fantastic. I think that watching this show, I, I can't wait to watch more of this show. 
It's just so well done and so All well right. put together. This is the first one that you've made me watch, and I'm like, okay, I want to carve out more time for this. All right. I'm very happy to hear that. I'm actually, I don't remember the original run that well because I watched yeah, it on right? Toonami when I, I had was the kid. same experience. Yeah. Um, and watching it now and, and kind of having the, the benefit of hindsight, I mean, how much do you think this show came into play to influence things like I, I think you can draw a it little bit of a ton of stuff. I think you can draw a line to this to, to uh, uh, Firefly. Like that oh, for sure. Yeah. That, I mean, you could you could call some like Han Solo layers on there and things like that. But this kind of I mean, if space Spike were played hunter, by Nathan Fillion, yeah. that's Firefly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there is in putting the gang together on a yeah. ship and having a little bit of a westernish type thing in there. There's no jazz in it, but yeah. I mean, that I think there's a pretty strong correlation there. And and you know, there's a few other things that we've seen since then of just taking kind of our classic storytelling techniques whether it's a western whether it's film noir and putting it in a future context yeah and we can go all the way back to blade runner again if you want to but we've talked talked quite about a lot about that <laughs> i mean just cyberpunk in general if, yeah if you want to see good versions of it you're left with blade runner if you want to see real people or a million and one animes yeah so sci-fi yeah. fans are i find that a lot of sci-fi fans are also anime fans for that reason mm-hmm. that's step that was definitely one of my entry points. I'm very happy to hear that you actually you, you liked it. Yeah, it was great. Is, yeah. is there anything that I missed that you're like, oh, I'm, I'm bummed that you didn't pick up on this? No, I just, I'm blown away at just how well done some of this. Because you, you know me, like, anime doesn't hit me the way it does a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. I don't think I get as into it. It's just because a lot of anime is kind of like musicals to me. They just seem all alike to me. It's just the same style done over and over again. Yeah. And so, but with this one, it's the anime and the style, but it's so original and so innovating for a for a, a genre. I don't think there's a lot of other animes that you can point to and say, "Oh wow, it looks like this." They they did this. They they got experimental and it paid off. Mm-hmm. I I. I love what they did with the this. way that things are framed is interesting too. Yeah, it's it's just done very well. Um, it's interesting when you get into the into the later stuff uh, with the gang actually getting back together because it's just uh, I don't know the, the the dynamics of of clearly reluctant heroes and people that don't get along but for some reason they still hang out together type yeah. thing. It's just it's pretty great. Guardians of the Galaxy, right? There you go. Thanks to Don Rowich and Matisse Fletcher for helping Dyer out with that Oregon Trail piece. And a big thank you to the Hoot Hoots for our awesome theme music. If you haven't already, make sure that you're following us on social media. That's where you get to see things like our adventures in Renton this past weekend at the con to launch the cons and all kinds of things that we're unable to fit into the podcast since space is a little more limited here in the audio format. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find links to all of those on our website, nw-nerd.com. Thus concludes episode 16 of season two of the Northwest Nerd Podcast. We'll be back in a week with another roundtable episode, so we'll see you next week, nerds! Check, check, check. I'm having steak tonight. <laughs> I had to check the mics. <laughs> I'm not really having steak tonight. I'm having soup. <laughs>